Well, hey, Mosaic, how are you guys? If we haven't met before, my name is Bill. I am one of the pastors here. So we've been in this conversation, right, called the good life because we're convinced, right, that we've been promised this good life. The second you cross over into the Nebraska border, it says, welcome to the good life, right? So I've been promised the good life by Nebraska and also Jesus. Jesus said, I I come to give you life and to give life in its fullest. And we're convinced that the only way to really, truly experience the good life is to live for the good of others. And so week one, we talked about really engaging. How do we engage our neighbors? How do we engage uh, the people around us? People that we see every day, how do we actually get to know them? And then last week, we really talked about providing relief. That when a need presents itself... Uh, What the people of Jesus do, the people who follow Jesus, like we step in. When we see a need, we step in. And we realize that in doing those things, what Jesus tells us, we do it for him as well. And so today, we're really going to continue this conversation. And this, for me, is one of the most exciting areas. This, for me, is kind of where my heart's just beating. What do we do now? What do we do after we engage? What do we do after we provide relief before we get there, I want to I hear from you guys. So, what is poverty? So, what is poverty? What is something that you said or something that someone talked to you said? But what do you guys think? Let's not overthink it. Let's just say, what do you guys think poverty is? Lacking financially. Lacking financially. Financially. Emotionally, spiritually, what else? Physically, okay, anything else? Not having means to live comfortably. Hopelessness. I'll take one more. What'd you say? Mentally? Mentally? Yeah. Yeah, lacking something. What's really interesting is when you survey most North Americans, when you ask them the question, Describe a poor person, or what is poverty? Typically, we say things that have to do with material things. You're lacking financially, lacking physically, bankrupt. Uh, There's something that we don't have. Uh, And what's really interesting is um, it's not always necessarily the way that around the world, uh, people who are in poverty describe their own poverty. Um, One thing that, uh, so the World Bank, they did this survey. Uh, They called it the Voices of Poverty. What they did was they interviewed 60,000 people who lived in poverty, uh, and they asked them this question, what does it mean to be poor? 60,000 people from 60 different countries, uh, and here's some of the response that they got back from the country of Georgia. Poverty is a lack of freedom, enslaved by crushing daily burden, by depression and fear of what the future will bring. From Moldova, for a person... Everything is terrible. 
We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. That's from Moldova. Poverty is like living in jail, living under bondage, waiting to be free. If you want to do something and have no power in it, it is poverty. See, and I think part of what your answers were is you guys really tapped into a lot of these things, is that it's not always physical. Like a lot of times it is emotionally bankrupt. A lot of times it has a lot to do with loneliness. uh, And really poverty is so big and it's so much bigger than what we can provide physically for people. And so the, the, the issue is when we begin to ask ourselves this question, how do we help people without hurting them? Because really, if we, if we only step into these two areas right there, engage in relief, engage in relief, engage in relief, essentially what we're just doing is we're like a distribution center, right? A distribution center where the rich, they come to give their clothes or give their shoes or give their food, uh, and they feel good about themselves because they gave something away. And the poor come to receive those things, the food, the clothes, the shoes, and they feel good because they have a need provided for them. But the problem with that is no one leaves transformed in that situation. No one leaves empowered in that situation. And so really the conversation that I want us to step into is to move on and not just be left at relief, but how do we empower those who we'd say are poor? Uh, about five, six years ago, I had a great job. Great job. It paid a lot of money, uh, and it sounded really cool. I worked for a visual effects company in Hollywood. Everyone thought my job was a big deal, but really all I did was I worked in Excel all day. Anyone work in Excel all day? It's the worst, right? Like, I might as well have been doing insurance. No offense to anyone who does insurance, but I'm working on movies, but I'm stuck in an Excel database all day long, uh, and it was the worst job ever, so I quit. And so I remember when I was quitting, I went to HR, and they said, hey, well, actually, what's sort of happening, because you finished this movie, uh, you're just not renewing your contract, which means you get unemployment. So I'm like, score, jackpot, right? I quit my job, and I get unemployment. So I apply for unemployment, and I get this pre-approval letter. And because I had a decent salary, my pre-approval letter, I was going to get a pretty decent unemployment. And me and Nicole, we had already downgraded our home. We had downgraded our budget, knowing this was coming. Uh, And so it was enough money for us to live off of. And my first thought was, I don't have to work. If I get this money, I don't have to work. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm excited because I don't have to work for a certain period of time. But all I needed to do was do a phone interview. They gave me the day. They gave me the time. About a week later, I'm sitting with my wife at this romantic meal, eating Burger King or something. I don't know. I just quit my job, right? And my phone starts buzzing in my pocket, and I decide, you know what? I'm going to engage with my beautiful wife and not answer my phone. Uh, Later, I checked my phone, and it was actually the interview that I was supposed to be talking to the unemployment office. But they said, hey, you could call us back, and you can still do it. So I called them back, and after... When you call this number, you have to go through five minutes of menus where you like you press a button and then there's like a commercial you got to listen to, press another button, another commercial. And after five minutes on the line, it would say, we're sorry, all our agents are busy. 
expecting them to say what? Stay on the line, please hold. It says, so please call back later, and it would hang up the phone. I'm like, what is this about? This is a really inefficient system. And so I called every day, probably 100 times a day, waiting for five minutes. So I spent all day long for two days straight. And then the next day I got an email that said my application was rejected. And I was so mad. I'm so mad because like they messed me up, right? I know I missed the phone interview, but come on. Like how is this, like how do people get through this system? It's a really bad system. But then what kind of went on in my soul was what I thought at the beginning when I got that pre-approval letter. I don't have to work. And what I realized was, really, that unemployment was just going to make me lazy. It was going to make me dependent. And for me, in my situation, we actually didn't need that. I could have found a job. I didn't need to be jobless. And so for me, it would have caused me to be in a situation where it was actually hurting me more than it was helping me. Because it's kind of the way that we are designed as human beings. Anytime we have a situation where, you know, we have to do little effort, but you get a high reward out of it, like we want that. Our brain says, this is good. Hey, guess what? We're going to send you a check every, every month in the mail that's going to provide for your finances, and you don't have to do anything. Like, who's not going to take that deal, right? Like, we all strive for that. Investing in the stock market, you just throw your money in there, and then hopefully, boom, jackpot, you make money, right? That's why we love TV. No effort. You just sit on the couch, eat potato chips, and you get to watch million-dollar movies, right in front of you. Little effort, high reward. Our brains are wired to say, this is good. This is good. I want more of it. And what we have to realize is that if our brains are designed that way, everyone's brains are designed that way. And when we step into helping someone, we need to empower them because if all we're doing is engaging and providing relief, all this is going to create is dependency. All that's going to create is dependency. And so how do we move people forward? How do we help empower those who are poor? And how do we broaden our view and our idea of what poverty even is or what poverty even means? Because I'm sure every single one of us in this room, we may not know a homeless person, but I'm sure everyone in this room, we know someone who is emotionally bankrupt. We know someone who is physically bankrupt. We know someone who is financially bankrupt. And how can we step into that situation and how can we empower them in order to get through that? Uh, I love the story that Evan read. Um, I love that story because really what Jesus is laying out for us is this model right here, this engage, relief, empowerment model. And he's really setting up uh, his future kingdom. Like this is, he's setting up his kingdom strategy because what we have to understand about this story that Evan read is this is found at the end of the book of John. So there's four accounts that were written about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is in the last chapter of John. This is the last story before the gospels are closed out. And this is it. This is it where Jesus is about to say, I'm leaving. I'm leaving and I'm handing this thing to you. This is yours now. And so I want to read the end of that story uh, for us. John chapter 21, verse 15 to 19. 
It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And what's profound about this moment is Jesus emphasizes name, uh, Peter's name three times. He's like, Peter, Peter, son of John. And that's so significant for two main reasons. One, he says it three times. Uh, many of you know when Jesus was arrested, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. And so Jesus in this moment, he's giving him another chance. He's like, I'm giving you another chance. I'm, I'm letting you reclaim this because Peter had given up, right? Peter went back to being a fisherman. Peter went from being a fisherman to following Jesus. And then he went back to being a fisherman because he stopped believing that he could do it. He stopped believing. And so Jesus is engaging him in this moment. And he's saying, yes, you can. Simon or Peter, because he changed his name from Simon to Peter. He changed his name when Peter said, you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, yes, and on that rock, I will build my church. And now you will be called Peter. He changed Peter's name. And so in this moment, this is a wake-up call because all throughout the book of John, anytime Jesus uses someone's name and he says it verbally, it's a wake-up. It's like, wake up, right? So we find it in the story of Lazarus. So one of Jesus' friends named Lazarus died. And Jesus, he travels and he shows up two or three days after and he says, roll the stone away from the tomb. And they're like, are you kidding me? Like, it's going to smell like a rotting corpse. That's a bad idea. But they do it anyways. They, they roll the stone away from the tomb and then Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. He does. Another time, Jesus is crucified. They put him in the tomb. And then Mary Magdalene, one of his closest followers... Uh, goes to the tomb, and she begins talking to who she thinks is the gardener. And then Jesus says her name. Jesus says, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And she immediately recognized him. Immediately recognized him. So this is a wake up, right? So Jesus is, uh, is wanting Peter to wake up. And I believe that a lot of us today, we need a wake-up call. Um, I was reading this book, Irresistible Revolution, by this author, Shane Claiborne. And he said, he said this. It's at the very end of the slide. I know I'm mixing around on you guys. I always drive the people on the slides crazy because Aaron goes in perfect order every week. And I skip around every single week. So they're awesome. Uh, love you guys. Um, he says, I ask participants who claim to be strong followers of Jesus whether Jesus spent time with the poor. Nearly 80% said yes. So 80% of people that this man interviewed said Jesus spent time with the poor. I don't know what the other 20 were thinking, but that's okay. Later in the survey, I sneaked in another question. I asked the same group of strong followers whether they spent time with the poor, and less than 2% said that they did. So 80% of people said yes. Jesus spent time with the poor, and 2% of those people said that they spent time with the poor. I believe that, friends, is a wake-up. That, friends, is a wake-up mosaic. 
Like, this is an important conversation for us to have, right? It is important for us to engage the poor and to really, how do we help them without hurting them? And then Shane goes on to say, I learned a powerful lesson. We can admire and worship Jesus without doing what he did. We can applaud what he preached and stood for without caring about the same things. We can adore his cross without taking up ours. I had come to see that the great tragedy of the church is not that the rich don't care about the poor, but it's that the rich don't know the poor. It's that the rich don't know the poor. So this, I believe, the whole intention of this series, it it, it should be a wake-up for us. How can we wake up? How can we realize that this is something we as a church can and should be engaged with? And then uh, Jesus, he... um, he says very specifically, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, of course I do. Why do you keep asking me this question? And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And last week we talked about the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? And I don't want to make a tie-in where there's not a tie-in, but uh, the sheep are the people who serve the least and the lowest, The sheep are the people who Jesus says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And Jesus in this moment is saying, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, right? Because it's not just about words. It's about words and action. It's about stepping into moments. And it's about being very aware of those things. And not just allowing it to be, I love you, Jesus, but there's actually action attributed to it. And then, really, in essence, he's calling Peter to become a shepherd, right? And if we know, we know some things about shepherds in this day and age is it's not a glamorous job by any means. I know a lot of times the Psalms can glamorize who shepherds are, but it's not a glamorous job. And in fact, in Jesus's time, it was a job for outcasts. It was a job for criminals. It was a job for those who have been cast out by society, the thugs, the thieves, those who can't be with the people anymore, you need to go out and be with the sheep, right? It's not a nice job. You're in the elements, and you end up smelling like sheep. You end up smelling like sheep. And so in this moment, Jesus, in essence, is saying, I'm sending you to the least and the lowest. I'm sending you to the hard work, And it's not going to be the glamorous job. It's not going to be the politicians. It's not going to be the generals. It's going to be you serving the least and the lowest. And Jesus does this many times to his followers, to his disciples. He sends them into the storm. Uh, One of my favorite examples of that uh, is found in the book of Mark, chapter 4. It says, uh, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Way to go, Jesus. How did he not wake up, by the way? I think he was faking it. He's like, I'm going to see what they do. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? which would be my response to. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calmed. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
Why are you so afraid? One, of course they're afraid, right? They think they're going to die. And then he says, why do you have such a little faith? Why does Jesus say it? He says it because what he's trying to say is you don't understand what I'm trying to send you into. You think I'm trying to save you from the storm? No, I'm sending you into the storm. Because the thing about the Sea of Galilee is you don't go on the Sea of Galilee at night. Because it's in a part of the geographic location where uh, storms can brew very quickly. And it's hard enough to get out of the storm if you get caught in one during the day, let alone in the middle of the night. So you don't go on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. And that's exactly where Jesus sends them. So the important thing for us to know is that Jesus, he doesn't always protect us from the storm. A lot of times he sends us into the storm. Right? And so this is not a glamorous job that we're being called to, to serve and to love the poor. This is hard, right? The idea of just engaging in relief, that's hard enough. It really is because we're so busy. We have so much to do. We have so much that take up our time and attention. And if you're like me, you already feel like you have very little margin in your life. And the second you have to ask yourself the question, how can I empower that becomes exponentially more difficult. Exponentially more difficult. Uh, we were connected to this guy named Dennis. Um, Dennis was a guy who, I've told this story a couple times, but he was on the street for 15 years. Uh, he got foot surgery, and he realized, I can't be on the street anymore. Because if I'm on the street, like, I'm literally probably going to die. So he went to an agency, and the agency figured out a way with his Social Security to get an apartment for him. So then the agency, they called me and they said, hey, we got him an apartment, we got him a bed. Uh, he just needs everything. Like he needs bed sheets, he needs towels, he needs kitchen supplies, he needs some food. And so I said, okay, we got this. And so I went out and I, uh, I went with the guy from the agency and Dennis and I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to take him to Target. Like this is a big deal, right? He's getting off the street from 15 years. I don't want to just take him to Goodwill. Like, let's, let's take him to Target. Like, let's, let's, let's take him to classy town, right? Target is nice. Target's classy. So we go there, and we're picking out bed sheets, and uh, we're picking out towels. Uh, I buy him this really, probably the most expensive crock pot there, and then just tons of food, a cart full of food um, pro- that was supposed to last him for two or three weeks. Um, and so then we drop him off at home, and I leave. Uh, and I called the agency a couple weeks later, and I say, hey, have you guys checked in on Dennis? And they said no. And I'm like, well, someone probably needs to check in on him. And so then I went to Dennis's house, and I knocked on the door, uh, and he was sleeping on the ground in the living room, even though he had a bed and bed sheets and everything. But he wasn't using that. So I went over to his fridge, and I opened up the fridge, and most of the meat that I bought him was just kind of rotting in the fridge, except for the eggs and bacon. He loves eggs and bacon. Uh, and I was a little upset at first because I was like, man, we, we went above and beyond for you. This just seems like, like what, what the heck? Uh, and I sat down with Dennis that day, and he began to tell me his story, how he ended up on the street, about his kids that he haven't, hasn't seen in 15 years. And what I began to realize was Dennis actually didn't need a lot of those physical needs. He needed something very different. And I was assuming what I thought that he needed, but it actually wasn't what he needed. And so I introduced uh, one of my friends, Andrew, to Dennis. And Andrew started visiting Dennis regularly. A couple weeks ago, I asked Dennis, I said, who, who comes to visit you? He said, 
just Andrew, just Andrew. And it just hit me like, man, how do we empower Dennis? I, I actually don't know because it's so, so hard. But what I do know is that without Andrew, without Andrew regularly connecting with him and just being a friend to him, we could never empower him. Right? And so a lot of times, really, the first step is, are we regularly involved with people who without us have no one? Because I guarantee you there's a lot more Dennis's in Lincoln uh, that don't have anyone. We just don't know. But it's about keeping our eyes open. It's about being aware. It's about waking up and stepping in and being willing to be a shepherd. Right? Be willing to walk with the least and the lowest. And what Jesus says is you're going to smell like sheep. Are we willing to, in that moment, go alongside the least and the lowest and realize that's who we are, right? And then Jesus, he creates a strategy to empower Peter, right? He actually ends up saying to Peter, uh, he says in verse 18, he says, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and, when you, and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Essentially what Jesus in this moment is saying, you're going to get crucified, now follow me. By serving the least and the lowest and the poor, you're going to get crucified, now follow me. What would your answer in that case be? Right? He's calling him into the storm. But then Jesus, he earlier made a promise. He says, even though I'm leaving, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you by yourself. I'm going to send someone. We find it in John chapter 14, verse 15. It says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And then he says in John chapter 16, he says, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. I will send him to you. See, really, this engagement, relief, empowerment strategy, this is not new. This is Jesus' strategy, right? That Jesus came in physical form and he engaged with us. And relief, every single one of us, we realize there's a problem, right? There's a problem in us and there's a problem in the world. And that problem is called sin, and we have sinned, and others have sinned against us, and we have sinned against the world, and we realize things are a little bit in chaos. And the cross, the cross provides that relief, that forgiveness of sins, the destruction of sin on the cross. But then we don't stay there, because there's the empowerment that Jesus promises us an advocate, an encourager, a comforter, someone to be with us and to empower us to be able to continue what he started 2,000 years ago. And so when we look at the world around us, what we begin to realize is this is Jesus' strategy for the world. Jesus' strategy for the world is to empower you, empower you to continue what he started so long ago. What did he do? Right? Everywhere he went, the blind saw, the lame walked, people were fed, People were healed. People were loved. And that's what we can continue walking into today. 
I understand and I realize that uh, this can feel a little bit like an intense series. Because if you're anything like me, what you begin to feel is guilt, right? Because you're like, man, I'm not doing enough. Man, I feel really guilty. I feel full of shame. And what I would say is, Jesus is not a God who's wanting to fill you with guilt and shame. He wants to empower us. And we can recognize in this moment, okay, yeah, maybe I had messed up. But we can confess that and we can move forward. And I even realized as a church, I've been a part of this church for three years. uh, We haven't always done the best job at this, right? Just corporate wide. And it's been something that's just weighed on my heart for a long time. And it's weighed on errands. And we've just been brainstorming trying to figure out what do we need to do? right? How can we fix these issues, fix these problems? Uh, And so in the midst of that, uh, just everything that we were trying to do on the north side of town in our church plant uh, in the Clinton neighborhood at the Bay, we realized it just wasn't going the right direction. But what we were finding is we were connecting with so many people that needed our involvement. We were connecting with these neighborhoods that were really ignored by a lot of Lincoln Uh, Lincoln does a really good job in hiding its poverty. And our eyes began to get open and we began to see a lot of these things. And we said, we can't ignore these things anymore. And so I also understand that it's not entirely fair to present a lot of these ideas without presenting options, right? Because a lot of times we want to do something to help. We just don't know how to help. So what I want to do is I want to kind of present what Mosaic is doing about it right? What we feel like we are called to as a community and what we're kind of changing and transitioning. So I've been talking about this transition for our church called Mosaic at the Bay uh, on the north side of town. And really what we're transitioning that into is community development. Uh, Because we realize what that neighborhood needs is a group of people who are actively serving them. A group of people who are actively saying, we want to empower you. We want to empower these neighborhoods, and how do we do that, right? And it becomes bigger, right? And so if we go to the next slide, kind of our strategy with that is, yeah, we're going to continue Sundays. We're going to meet in homes. Uh, We won't meet in a big gathering that's like this, but we realize that gathering and having uh, and praying together and eating together is vital. It's vital to poverty because some of us, feel spiritually bankrupt. Uh, But we also understand that a lot of times uh, spiritual needs are the last things that people want if you have physical, emotional, social needs. So how can we begin to step into those things? How can we power people? Um, Our strategy right now is food distributions. We partner with the Bay once every month to do a food distribution. And now with that, right, empowerment, how does that empowerment and not just relief is, is you change the way you think about it, right? So how can we work with the people that come to food distribution and set them up so that they no longer need the food distribution? What if that was our metric? Rather than how many tons of food we gave away this year, how many people no longer need those services because we were actually able to empower them, right? After school programs at Clinton and uh, Hartley, How do we create a value and empowerment strategy for kids to have value for getting a high school diploma? Because what we found in those neighborhoods that I shared with us last week is that 38% of people in Clinton don't have a high school diploma, 44% in Hartley don't have a high school diploma. 
Uh, and then we see that is tied so closely to poverty levels as well, nationwide and even in our city. Teens, we're doing a mentoring program partnered with the Bay and Big Brothers Big Sisters um, so that really we can help uh, do one-on-one mentoring with a lot of the teens that call the Bay their home, many of which don't have fathers in their life. Uh, our neighborhood resource team, actually I'll talk about block parties first. Block parties, this one's, this one's fun. We've been doing this for a while. I love block parties. The cool thing about block parties though, is kind of what I said week one. Neighborhoods where the neighbors know each other's names have 80% less crime. Neighborhoods, when you know your neighbor's names have 80% less crime. What a better way to get neighbors to know each other than throw parties, right? Block parties aren't just a party. It has very strategic value. Our neighborhood resource team is uh, when there's a need presented to us, a physical need, whether that's uh, we need a couch or a bed or this or that, we can step into that. But what's cool about that is that creates a relationship. One of the women that we have a relationship with, uh, she barely speaks English, but we formed this really deep friendship with her. And so we began, to, we began to talk to her about, hey, can we take you through ESL classes, English as a second language classes? Can we provide that for you? Knowing that someday you are going to provide that for your friends who don't know English. And how can we empower you so that you can begin to empower the community that you're connected to? And so for us, we want to create this empowering movement And I'm not saying that every single one of you need to get involved with that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is there's options if you're saying, I want to do something, I just don't know what to do. And part of it is I kind of want to update you to like the heartbeat of Mosaic and where we feel like we're led, where we feel like we're heading as a future and as a church and something that we are ridiculously excited about. Relief is easy. Engagement and relief, those two things are easy. But the second you begin to ask yourself the question, how am I going to take this person on a journey of empowerment? That takes a long, long, long time and is really, really, really difficult. And I fear that a lot of times we don't step into that because of how difficult it is. Because when you can get up on a stage and say how many tons of food you gave away, or how many clothes you gave away, or how many shoes you gave away, or how many this or that you gave away, those are statistics that everyone likes to hear, right? But if we began to ask ourselves, who no longer needs our relief because we empowered them, right? That, to me, is a better strategy, uh, but it's it's not as easy to put on paper. It's not as easy to pull off. Because what it takes is every single one of us actually engaging. What it takes is every single one of us stepping in to these moments to say, how can I empower the people around us? And so begin to put your brain through this catalog now. Who in your life are you engaged with that is in poverty? What does that person's face look like? Who is that person's name? And maybe you're walking by that person every day. Maybe you're sitting next to that person at work. But who is that person that God is laying on your heart to say, I need to engage with this person? How are you providing relief for them? How are you providing some sort of need in their life, whether that's physical, whether that's emotional? What are you doing? What steps are you taking? And then ask yourself the next question is, how can I empower that person? Just like Jesus, right? I'm not going to be here forever. I'm not going to be here forever, so how can I set you up where you don't need me here anymore? 
What steps can you take to empower them? I'm convinced that if we want to live the good life, we need to live for the good of others. And I'm also convinced that this world is not the way that it should be. And so when Jesus uses words like sin, right, he's talking about me, he's talking about you, he's talking about this world we live in. Things just aren't the way that they should be. And the cross offers us that relief, that cross offers us the freedom from guilt, the freedom from shame, the freedom from the sins that we've committed, the sins that others have committed against us. There's freedom in that. And then the Holy Spirit can empower us to live the life that we were always meant to live. The Spirit empowers us to say, you know what? I want to step out. I want to serve the least and the lowest and doing so become the least and the lowest. Let's pray together. God, I realize that when I read Shane Claiborne's quote about Christians not engaging the poor, how convicted that makes me, and I'm sure that there's those in this room that feel the same way I do. And so, God, I pray that this week you will begin to open up doors in every life that is in this room. Every person who's in this room that says, yes, I want to do something about this. I feel that twinge of, yes, I want to do that. I want to feed your sheep, Jesus. God, I pray that you will inspire minds, you will inspire hearts with whoever those people are, whatever that person is, whatever that person needs to do to make that happen. And God, I don't pray for a spirit of guilt or shame because we haven't done good enough. Holy Spirit, I pray that you empower us, that you bring peace to our souls, you bring peace to our lives, where we say, you know what? Maybe I haven't done so good in the past, but I'm going to do good going forward. God, help us to be present in this world. Help us to be empowered by your spirit, to be you, Jesus, in the flesh, the church, the body of Christ, to do the work that you started 2,000 years ago. Jesus, 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 empower us to empower the poor who are all around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.